Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast. Each January, in the season when everyone's looking back on the year just passed, we opt to bring you a retrospective episode that dives into our own archives from a full 10 years past. And usually these come out in the beginning of January, but we had an insurrection based on racist conspiratorial lies instead, so this episode got delayed. But now it's here. This year we are looking back on 2011, and you will recall that 2010 immediately preceded 2011. 2010 was the year the Tea Party rode a wave of Koch brother money and anti-Obama racism to victory in the midterm elections. Well, 2011 was the year that all of those people were actually seated in Congress. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on you. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the elected official whom we as a country have just put in charge of higher education in the House of Representatives. Most of the things that have been done by the federal government that are unconstitutional, in my opinion, have been done for good reasons. They're not malevolent reasons, but they're wrong. We should not be funding education, for example. Congresswoman Virginia Fox, newly named chair of the Higher Education Subcommittee, doesn't believe the government should fund education. She doesn't believe the government should be doing anything about education. And so therefore, naturally, she has been put in charge of it for the government, for the part of it that the Republicans control, at least. One of Ms. Fox's first priorities, she says, is to hold hearings on and try to undo the student loan reform that passed under Democrats in the last Congress. Student loan reform, the thing that Virginia Fox appears to want to dismantle, I think is one of the most underappreciated things that got done out of the many underappreciated things that got done in the last Congress. Before student loan reform, private companies were getting subsidies to give out loans, right? The loans were guaranteed by the government anyway. So think about that for a second. The government is taking on all the risk. They are guaranteeing the loan and they are providing the money. And inexplicably, some private company was getting paid, was getting more government money just to hand out the government-guaranteed government loans. They took on zero risk, they provided zero added value, and they got paid a guaranteed amount for doing nothing useful. It was a license to print money. Have you had student loans? I've been swimming up to my neck in student loans for most of my adult life. My adult life. How much service did you get from these student loan companies that were getting guaranteed taxpayer subsidies? to provide those loans that were guaranteed by the government anyway. Really. Student loan reform took that shockingly stupid, pointless, expensive middleman out of the system and used the tens of billions of dollars that that saved to ease the deficit and to give more college loans to students. Total no-brainer. Naturally, Virginia Fox wants to get rid of it. That's who Republicans have put in charge of higher education in the House. Here's who they've put in charge of science. My grandchildren get tired of me telling them, hellfire, I can take a big chief tablet and cedar pencil and figure out anything you all can if you give me enough time. But Ralph Hall is very charming. He is the oldest member of Congress. He is 87 years old, which is awesome. He has just been put in charge of the House Science and Technology Committee. Awkwardly, because this is awkward even when you're not talking about an 87-year-old, but it's really awkward when you are. Awkwardly, Ralph Hall is also the porn poison pill guy. 
Remember when we, we reported on this? Uh, presented with a bill to fund math and science research and education last summer, Ralph Hall killed it with what's known as a poison pill. A poison pill is where you kill a piece of legislation by attaxing, attaching something to it that's really toxic. In the case of Ralph Hall and the math and science bill, it was a porn poison pill. Ralph Hall turned a vote for math and science research into a vote for government workers being paid to look at pornography on their work computers. 87-year-old Ralph Hall, who killed science funding in the last Congress with a porn poison pill. Now Republicans have made him their man in charge of science. Now, I don't have time to include it here, but it's also worth mentioning that aside from being generally dumb, one of the first things the new GOP majority prioritized was repealing the Affordable Care Act, promising to raise the deficit, kick millions off of their health insurance coverage, and re-enable all of the abuses of health insurance companies like lifetime limits and exceptions for pre-existing conditions. So they're no stranger to pursuing policies that people hate. Speaking of healthcare, though, it is worth mentioning that 2011 was the year that Vermont took a run at creating a statewide single-payer system. After health care reform is passed, we are going to continue to see the cost of health care soaring for businesses and for working people as well. So we think, I think that health care reform is a step forward. We have got to go a lot further. I am very proud that in the state of Vermont, our small state may well be leading the nation in a new direction. Our Senate and our House are going to go forward and pass a Medicare for All single payer program. Our governor is prepared to sign that legislation, making Vermont the first state in the country to go forward with single payer. My hope is that we can get the waivers now lowered to 2014, which will allow the state of Vermont to use the federal resources that it will be receiving for a single payer program. Of course, that idea ended up being aborted before it was even able to launch, but a little bit more context is needed. The governor of Vermont, who was supportive of the program, said this as part of his statement when he announced that the policy would not go forward. Quote, I have learned that the limitations of state-based financing, limitations of federal law, limitations of our tax capacity, and sensitivity of our economy make that unwise and untenable at this time, unquote. In short, perhaps federal law may have held them back a little bit, but also they just got scared about the idea of raising taxes enough to fund the program, even though the reductions in out-of-pocket health care and health insurance costs would have made the new system more affordable for almost everyone, not less affordable. The propaganda to scare people about increased taxes worked, and the people who headed up the effort against the policy ended up with plush jobs in the Trump administration. And speaking of the deceptive, underhanded methods of propaganda Republicans used to trick people into hating good policy, 2011 was also the year that I got some advice from a former Republican that I still abide by to this day. There's a really good article by Michael Lofgren called Goodbye to All That, Reflections of a GOP Operative Who Left the Cult. And it's exactly what you're thinking. He was a GOP operative and privy to all the secret strategies of the GOP. And now he has left the party. He's really disillusioned by it. So he spilled the beans uh -uh. on Truthout. 
For example, uh, I'm going to read a short little paragraph from it. Um, A couple of years ago, a Republican committee staff director told me candidly and proudly what the method was to all this obstruction and disruption. Should Republicans succeed in obstructing the Senate from doing its job, it would further lower Congress's uh, generic favorability rating among the American people. By sabotaging the reputation of an institution of government, the party that is programmatically against government will come out the relative winner. So this makes sense because we've been seeing the Republicans stalling Congress, right? right? right. So what that does is lower Congress's favorability rating among amongst the American people. So when the Republicans run in the next election and say, oh, we're against big government, they're like, so are we because they can't do their jobs. Forgetting the fact that the Republicans are the reason that nothing is getting done. Right. And but that's interesting. That's an official strategy. Then there's another part of the article that was super interesting. And it's about the the branding of Social Security and Medicare as entitlements. Entitlement has a negative sound in colloquial English. Somebody who is entitled selfishly claims something he doesn't really deserve. And then this operative says, why not call them earned benefits? Which is what they are, because we all contribute payroll taxes to fund them. That would never occur to the Democrats. Republicans don't make that mistake. They are relentlessly on message. Mm -hmm. It is never the estate tax. It is the death tax. Heaven forbid that the Walton family should give up one penny of its $86 billion fortune. All of that lucre is necessary to... Ensure that unions be kept out of Walmart, that women employees not be promoted, and that politicians be kept on a short leash. I love calling it earned benefits. So everybody just work that into their vocabulary. Don't ever call it entitlements. Call it earned benefits. Because when workers sacrifice decades of their own labor, you know, breaking their bodies, devoting their time away from their families, every single penny of that that goes into their social security is theirs. So when these Republicans go on TV and they're acting like workers are somehow, yeah, overprivileged or they they use the word entitlements, just always think earned benefits. Yeah. I genuinely still use the term earned benefits and had no idea where I got that from until hearing this old clip again. And that's not the only great reframing that I still quote to this day that I got back in 2011, but we'll get to that in a couple of minutes. First, though, we move on to Wisconsin. In his battle to balance Wisconsin's budget, Governor Scott Walker has finally put his proposals on the table. He is... In addition to stripping teachers and public workers of most of their collective bargaining rights, cutting $800 million from the Wisconsin public schools budget over the next two years, as well as restricting local municipalities the ability to raise property taxes to make up for any shortfalls. In essence, he has put public sector unions on notice, and particularly teachers, that the gravy train is over. (laughs) Even if the gravy is actually lunchroom cafeteria-grade, gravy-like rehydrated slurry chips. We can no longer live in a society where the public employees are the haves and the taxpayers who foot the bills are the have-nots. In these tough economic times, we've all got to be in it together. We all are in it together. All of us have to sacrifice. Teachers, teachers' assistants, (laughs) student teachers, retired teachers, Teachers, school janitors, everybody has to sacrifice. Why teachers? Well, as Republicans and their kin in the media know, 
you got to follow the money. The average teacher's salary is much greater than the average private Absolutely. sector salary. Salary, $51,000 in Wisconsin. Benefits, $38,000 per year. That comes to a whopping 89000 bucks. More than their private sector counterparts. We're talking a $90,000 Nine months worth of work, uh, all in package. Boy, it sounds pretty darn good to the hey, 14 million people out of work. Well, you know what? That does sound great to someone without a job. <laughs> and did you know? You're not even going to believe this. Some of these fat cat public school kids are getting a hot breakfast free every morning. <laughs> I bet starving people would like a piece of that action, don't you think? I'm here to report that there is nothing wrong in the state of Wisconsin. Wisconsin is fine. Wisconsin is great, actually. Uh, despite what you may have heard about Wisconsin's finances, Wisconsin is on track to have a budget surplus this year. I am not kidding. I'm quoting their own version of the Congressional Budget Office, the state's own nonpartisan assess the state's finances agency. That agency said the month that the new Republican governor of Wisconsin was sworn in last month that the state was on track to have a $120 million budget surplus this year. So then why exactly does Wisconsin look like this right now? Why is there a revolt? in the American Midwest tonight? Why are we in day three of massive, massive protests? Real upheaval in Wisconsin's capital city of Madison. Why are we seeing what was described today by my friend John Nichols, a seventh generation Wisconsinite, as perhaps the biggest protests that have been seen in that state since Vietnam? Why is this happening? As the state's own finances show, it is not happening because people who work for the state are the cause of some horrible budget crisis. It's not because teachers are lazy and rich. The state is not bankrupt. Even though the state had started the year on track to have a budget surplus, now there is in fact a $137 million budget shortfall. Republican Governor Scott Walker, coincidentally, has given away $140 million worth of business tax breaks since he came into office. Hey, wait, that's about exactly the size of the shortfall. What is happening in Wisconsin right now has absolutely nothing to do with public workers. The headline here, the way this keeps getting shorthanded is workers angry after state is forced by budget crisis to crack down. That's not what's going on. The state is not being forced to crack down. The main headline that you are seeing right now about this remarkable thing that's going on in the American Midwest, the headlines you are seeing about this are mostly wrong. Because what's going on right now in the American Midwest is about Republicans versus Democrats. It is about politics. It is about who wins the next election and the elections after that. There are, there are parts of the story that actually don't make any sense unless you understand that. One thing that doesn't make sense, Wisconsin's Republican governor, this guy Scott Walker, has uh, proposed dismantling the unions for people who work for the government, except for cops and firefighters and state troopers. Why are they exempt? Is it because they're all law enforcement and emergency services, therefore they, they need unions more than other state employees? Well, it can't really be that, um, because corrections officers are among those who are getting the shaft, while the cops and the firefighters and the state troopers are specifically exempt. 
Okay. What's the other thing that's true about these three specific unions who are exempted from this crackdown? Cops, firefighters, and state troopers. What's the other thing about them? Oh, those are the three exact unions that supported the Republican governor in the last election. So they get taken care of. Everybody else gets dismantled. That should have been the first hint that this maybe was about politics and not about a fiscal crisis. In 2008, the groups that spent the most money on elections that year were the Chamber of Commerce, the giant right-wing pack Freedom's Watch, the National Rifle Association, and hey, wait, what are all those weird little initials? Oh, yes, Service Employees International Union and the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, the Public Employees Union. In 2010, post-Citizens United, seven of the top 10 outside spending groups in the election were all right-wing. Chamber of Commerce, both of Karl Rove's groups, the American Future Fund, Americans for Job Security, all of these right-wing groups, the only non-conservative groups that cracked the top 10 were the Public Employees Union, the SEIU, and the Teachers Union. That's it. Unions are the only competition Republicans have in electoral politics. Post-Citizens United, conservatives look at this and they smell blood. I mean, compare this to 08. They have knocked the unions down to sixth and seventh place. Without unions, essentially, all of the big money in politics would be right-wing money, all of it. That is not hyperbole, all of it. Unions are the only players, they are the only fish of any size on the liberal side. And for this next gem, the context you need is that the Democrats in the Wisconsin state legislature had taken the extreme step against this hostile takeover by anti-union Republicans. They not only refused to appear in the assembly to prevent a legal quorum from being formed, they also left the state to prevent state police from being able to track them down and forcibly bring them in. You know how we've been telling you about how the billionaire Koch brothers who are financing Governor Walker and his attack on the middle class? Well, Ian Murphy, the editor of the alternative online magazine Buffalo Beast, prank called Governor Walker in Wisconsin pretending to be one of the brothers, David Koch. And are you ready for this? Walker bought it. He took the call and chatted with the fake Koch brother for 20 minutes. His office confirmed it. I couldn't believe it. It's an amazing look into Walker's thinking. We hear Walker, in his own words, giving details of how he plans to cripple public employees in his state. Governor Walker wasted no time threatening worker layoffs. I've got layoff notices ready. Uh, We put out the at-risk notices. We'll announce Thursday. uh, They'll go out early next week, and we'll probably get five to 6,000 state workers will get at-risk notices for layoffs. We might ratchet that up a little bit, too. Yeah, ready with the layoffs, five to six thousand. Going to ratchet it up, but you're, that's not fair. You said this was about the budget. Now they say yes, we'll give you all the pay cuts you want, and you say, "Don't worry, Mr. Coke, I'll fire him if you want me to." Then Walker made it clear that he has no intention of compromising with the Democrats. We don't budge. If you're Damn right, right. Then you stay. You stay firm. And in this case. And we say we'll wait it out. If they want to start sacrificing thousands of public workers who'll be laid off, sooner or later there's going to be pressure on these senators to come back. Beautiful. So, uh, of course, he says right there, we're not going to budge. We're never going to budge. We're going to make sure they budge. 
Next, the governor told the fake Koch about a plan to get the Democrats back to Wisconsin by saying he'll talk to them. But it turns out it's all a trick. Watch. I would be willing to sit down and talk to him, the Assembly Democrat leader, plus the other two Republican leaders. Talk, not negotiate, and listen to what they have to say if they will in turn but I'll only do it if all 14 of them come back and sit down in the state assembly. He says, look, I, I'm not going to negotiate with them. I'm just going to talk. I'll have them come in and yell at me for an hour. But in reality, once they're in the state, he's got a plan that he's ready to unleash that says, oh, once you've agreed to it, I don't care if you recess or you don't recess. The minute you step in and you take that first action, well, we've got quorum and we can go ahead with our plan. It's the whole thing. It's to trick the Democrats into coming back. He's telling them one thing, but he's telling the Koch brothers, don't worry. I'm going to do something completely different. Then toward the end of the conversation, Walker started talking about how he was setting the example for other states and setting the agenda to bus unions all over the country. I talk to Kasich every day. You know, John's got to stand firm in Ohio. I think we do the same thing with Rick Scott in Florida. I, I think uh, Schneider, if he got a little more support, probably could do that in Michigan. I mean, you start going down the list. You know, a lot of us, uh, there's a lot of us new governors who got elected to do something big. You're uh, the first domino. Our, yep. This is our moment. This is exactly what we told you last night. We told you they were coming to bust the unions all over the country. This doesn't have anything to do with Wisconsin's deficit. And when the billionaire calls, he says, oh, yeah, you're right, Mr. Koch. Absolutely, Mr. Koch. Let's do it all over the country. For a little more context, at this time in the early 2010s, the GOP majority in Wisconsin was in charge of redistricting in the state, which was first put to the test in 2012. Wisconsin was one of the most dramatic examples of partisan gerrymandering to benefit Republicans. In 2012, Barack Obama won the state, and the Democratic Party candidates for the state assembly got 53% of the 2.7 million votes cast in those local assembly races compared to 46% that went to Republicans, but Republicans won 60 assembly seats compared to 39 for the Democrats. In short, Democrats got more than half of the vote, and Republicans got more than 60% of the seats. So where is Scott Walker now? He unsuccessfully ran for president in 2016 and eventually lost a re-election bid in the Wisconsin governor's race in 2018 as part of the Trump backlash election. Shortly thereafter, he was made the fundraising chairman of the, get this, National Republican Redistricting Trust in charge of tricking people into believing that GOP redistricting is all about fairness in elections and that Democrats are only interested in redistricting so that they can lock in partisan gerrymandering. Perfect. Now, remember that I promised another great reframing that I got from 2011? You know the difference between the good and the evil in this world? The caring and the selfish, the Mel Gibson circa lethal weapon and the Mel Gibson circa apocalypto? The difference is that bad people have plans. 
They always have a fucking plan. Good people don't have plans or missions or agendas. They just stumble through life, thinking we'll all treat each other right if given the chance. Evil people have dry erase boards and PowerPoint presentations and iPad apps to keep track of just how the evil's coming along, whether it needs a course correction, because this evil, this quarter's evil is 3.5% lower than last quarter's. Good people don't have PowerPoints. Good people have have donuts and word jumbles. For example, the billionaire Koch brothers funded a politician, Scott Walker, to become governor of Wisconsin. They knew that when he became governor, he would fake a budget crisis and he would act like it was the biggest budget crisis to ever hit the planet Earth. He would then pass a law that would destroy collective bargaining, the linchpin for unions. Hidden in that same law would be a provision that allows the Koch brothers to buy state-owned utilities for almost nothing with no oversight. Both these things would make insane amounts of money for the Koch brothers. And on top of that, without union donations, very few Democrats would be able to get elected against the billions in corporate donations going to Republicans. With mostly Republicans winning elections, the Koch brothers would be able to purchase more and more of America. Now that's what I call a fucking plan. Bad people have plans. We don't have plans. I don't have a plan. You don't have a plan. Your plan was I'm going to watch internet videos. Meanwhile, Halliburton's plan was to cause a military coup in the sovereign country of Eritrea, a place neither you nor I ever knew existed, but they know because they also have maps. They have dry erase boards and f maps. I'm just saying the good people on this planet are never going to get the upper hand until we get some office supplies up in here. That was comedian Lee Camp, and evil people having plans and office supplies is still an idea that comes up in our household at least once a month. Though I just heard an even newer reframing of the same idea that I really like, it goes like this. It is time to end the era of only the bad guys knowing that they're at war. It's pretty good, right? Now, speaking of war, we move on to foreign policy in rapid succession. President Obama's decision to wage war on Libya is unconstitutional, naive, and hypocritical. Our founders would be appalled that a president could launch the country into war without a formal declaration by Congress, much less barely any discussion of it by the House or by the Senate. We as Americans need to face facts. we got a runaway executive branch when it comes to war making. And Obama appears naive in the extreme on this one. It's naive to expect U.S. involvement in this war to be over in days, not weeks, as he said. It's naive to expect all of Libya to cheer as its country is being attacked by Western powers. It's naive to expect civilian casualties not to mount as a result of his actions, which makes his stated reason for the war incoherent. He said innocent men and women face brutality and death at the hands of their own government. Well, that's true of the people of Yemen and Bahrain, too, where our own allies just mowed down dozens of peaceful protesters in the past week alone. There's no consistent humanitarian standard for Obama's war against Libya, none whatsoever. And he's pushed the U.S. to a place where we're now engaged in three wars simultaneously. It's getting to the point where war seems to be the only thing we make these days. On the issue of torture, you know, something that the Obama supporters quite often brag about, uh, there's a second problem. One, it had already been stopped 
Two, actually, some people say that there's still torture by proxy going on where we hand off uh, people to other countries and then just don't look the other way while they torture them. But let's get even beyond that and go to the third problem, which is that no one has been prosecuted. So which means that it just has become eh, political differences. It's not a crime anymore to torture people. In fact, the ACLU report says, quote, not a single victim of the Bush administration's torture regime has had his day in court and not a single court that was faced with a torture suit has addressed the core question of whether the victim's legal rights were violated. So if nobody ever went to trial and there was never a ruling that torture isn't legal, well, then it's just a political difference of opinion. Next time a Republican comes in, they can just go ahead and resume it. That is part of the problem of normalizing the things that were radical. That's why it's a crazy idea to not look backward and only look forward, especially in the area of prosecution. Because the whole idea of prosecution is to look back at what crimes you committed. It's not hard to imagine the legal and moral problems with the CIA flying robot drones over Pakistan. According to the agency, this is a good way to kill terrorists and militants. But many civilians are also killed, and the fact that the CIA is doing the killing raises serious legal concerns about the rules of war. But Newsweek magazine's February 21st issue presents the CIA program in an overwhelmingly positive light, largely unburdened by such concerns. Readers learn that the CIA bureaucracy is multi-layered and methodical, run by a core of civil servants who carry out their duties in a professional manner. Close quote. We're told of one drone strike that kills a high-level terrorism suspect while members of his family were spared. But how typical is that? Estimates vary. One analysis figured that 32% of drone deaths were civilians. Estimates in the Pakistani media are closer to 90%. Newsweek explains that Obama administration officials have been careful to reassure the public that the killings are legal. Close quote. But... The evidence for this, in the next sentence, is an official who states that operations are conducted in strict accordance with American law anonymously. In other words, we're following the law, but don't quote me on that. So where are the actual critics of drone assassinations? Tucked at the very end of the piece, where the magazine admits that drone-fired missiles are, quote, not always precise in the real world, close quote. Readers might have hoped that that would be the world under discussion. I'm telling you, no one comes close to the damage that Janine Jackson can inflict with a cutting comment on Counterspin. I love her. It sure is thrilling to be alive when history comes alive. Egypt is free. Mubarak has fled. The people have won. This is the most momentous day since the fall of the Soviet Union and the freeing of Nelson Mandela. And let's just stop for a moment and lay out the lessons. First and foremost, this shows that massive nonviolent protest really works. The demonstrators didn't get their way by the force of the gun, but by the force of their moral stance. 
This is the lesson that Gandhi taught us. This is the lesson that Martin Luther King taught us. Second, even the most repressive governments and the toughest security forces can't withstand the united rebellion of their people. This is the lesson Howard Zinn taught us. Third, this glorious revolution repudiates the bigoted notions that Muslims are somehow intrinsically more violent than followers of any other religion, or that Arab peoples are somehow not ready for democracy. And fourth, as usual, the U.S. government was caught flat-footed and responded haltingly and embarrassingly, especially at first, but even to the end. That's how it usually goes with the U.S. empire. We stand behind our brutal dictators until the last moment when the people rise up and make it impossible to defend those brutal rulers any longer. Today is a day to rejoice. Here's to nonviolent resistance. Here's to the Egyptian people. You've been seeing pictures of revolution on your TV screens for some days now. It's an amazing phenomenon unfolding right before our eyes. It started in Tunisia, then spread to Egypt, then Yemen. Now the King of Jordan has fired his cabinet. Groups in Syria are organizing online for a protest this Friday. And China is blocking the word Egypt from the internet for fear that the revolution against tyranny will spread to their shores. This is the revolution we were promised. When people talked about open government and free flow of information leading to democracy, this is what they were talking about. The internet revolution was a turn of phrase that referred to a new age in information. But now that phrase has become literal. Why are these democratic protests spreading like wildfire throughout the world? Because people are getting information about them through Facebook, Twitter, blogs, and websites. Before an oppressive state could shut down television stations or radio outlets in their country, and there would be an information blackout. Now they can't stop the information from flowing in. Even if they shut down Twitter, Google comes up with a new application where you can call in your tweets from your cell phone. This is pamphleteering on steroids. No matter where the authoritarian governments put up roadblocks, the information pours in anyway. And that information is power. This is the democratic movement we were promised. Let's embrace it. So just a quick update on those. Libya devolved into a failed state. Trump ran on a policy agenda of torturing and killing not just terrorists, but also their family members to get leverage, because that kind of thing is just a policy dispute these days. A generation of people across the Middle East are traumatized by the constant sound of drones flying overhead, threatening death at any moment. The revolution in Egypt was short-lived, and by 2014, the former army chief Abdel Fattah Ta el-Sisi became president. He still holds the position and is one of the many authoritarian leaders adding to the worldwide trend. The Arab Spring showed the positive power of social media, but also portended the coming of the dark inverse of that power that we are all too aware of now. The biggest problem, I would argue, with tech giants, aside from the incentive structures of their business models, is their overflowing optimism which was only bolstered by events like the Arab Spring. It drives them to create things with great benefits, which are often real, but also completely blinds them to the possibility of unforeseen negative consequences that come along for the ride when they're not guarded against. That's how you end up with the Arab Spring on one end and the Rohingya genocide in Myanmar incited on Facebook on the other. But finally... Onto the big news of the year. 
I got home at about, I think, 11 yesterday. And I just for a second just turned on the TV and saw every channel was talking about Obama has announced that he has killed, not personally, Osama bin Laden. And at that point, I don't know, I ended up getting wrapped up uh, watching the news and then the speech. And I mean, it was like 1 a.m. before I finally, uh, you know, wrapped things up. And there was really not that much to see. I mean, in other words, there were people in D.C. and in Times Square. But there was something that to me was a little bit of a turnoff in rejoicing the way that you would if a team wins a, a big soccer game about somebody dying, even though... I think it was Mark Twain who said, and I'm paraphrasing here, I don't wish death on anyone, but there are certain obituaries that I take pleasure in reading. I'd forgotten that phrase until hearing it again in this clip, but knowing how often Mark Twain gets wrongly credited with clever quotes, I thought I'd look it up. Turns out the closest the fact-checkers can get on this is uh, Clarence Darrow, a lawyer from the Scopes Monkey Trial, who apparently said something close to that in his memoir. This is why I want for this quote to be attributed to me and widely disseminated. Here it is. May I be wise enough in life that much wisdom be misattributed to me in death, or even before. Still, though, it's a good fake quote, even if it came from Clarence Darrow, and described pretty well my feelings in the wake of bin Laden's death. I was definitely in the camp of people who were repulsed by the outpouring of joy and exuberant jubilation at the news, as were the majority of callers who chimed in on the voicemail line. But now we move on to the major climate story of the year, the Keystone XL pipeline, which may be fresh in your mind because President Biden just re-canceled it. President Obama can decide this without Congress. What's his political calculation and which side do you expect him to end up on? Well, I think we're changing the odds of that at the moment. You know, a week ago, I think there's little question he would have gone ahead. Think of the pressure that's coming from the most powerful, profitable industry on the planet. Mm -hmm. But we've succeeded by organizing the largest civil disobedience protest in the environmental movement in decades in nationalizing this issue. It's no longer just people along the pipeline route and, and native people who really have been carrying this fight for a couple of years. Now it's people from all 50 states who have come to Washington to get arrested. And the media coverage that they're drawing is producing things like that editorial in the Times. So it's beginning to shift. It's going to be gut check time for the president. When he ran for president, he said, the night he was nominated, in fact, he said, you know what? When I'm president, the rise of the oceans will begin to slow and the planet will begin to heal. Mm -hmm. That's powerful talk. He hasn't yet done heroic things on the environment. He's done uh, some good things around the edges, but nothing transformative. And he's backed down on some important fights. Why is this one project worse <coughs> than usual, worse than acceptable? Sure. Uh, the answer lies at heart 
in the um, in the place it's coming from. Mm-hmm. Those tar sands of Canada are the second largest pool of carbon on Earth, only after the Saudi Arabian oil fields. We plumbed those Saudi oil fields 70 years ago when no one had heard of global warming. If we do the same kind of thing, make the same kind of investment, produce the same volumes of oil from Canada, then as Jim Hansen at NASA, our leading climate scientist, put it not long ago, it will be essentially game over for the climate. Mm. That's about as strong language as you're likely to get from a scientist. And it's a reminder that we need to leave carbon in the ground. And still climate related, this one is a classic that's sort of reminiscent of when the Koch brothers more recently funded a study trying to show how expensive single-payer healthcare would be, but ended up showing how much money would be saved if we ended up moving to a single-payer system. Thank you, billionaire Koch brothers. The billionaire Koch brothers, owners of one of the nation's largest oil and chemical conglomerates, along with being the founders and funders of the Tea Party and the climate change denial industry, the billionaire Koch brothers have done something good, funding a new climate research project at UC Berkeley, although the result is probably not what they were looking for. Analysis of these stations, we found a warming trend. Our result is very similar to that reported by the prior groups, who rise of about 0.7 degrees Celsius since 1957. This agreement with the prior analysis surprised us. That was Berkeley physicist Richard Muller, the prominent skeptic who set out to disprove the findings of NASA and other prominent scientific organizations in a House hearing earlier this year presenting his preliminary results. Now the results are in, and he says they confirm that the world is indeed warming and his results invalidate several key climate change skeptic arguments. So let me get this straight. The Koch brothers funded a study meant to show that climate science uh, saying that the globe was warming was all about and their own study shows that the original science was correct and that the Koch brothers have been wrong all along. That is true. Well, then, indeed. Thank you. Coke brothers. Oh, but it gets better. Now the climate science denier community has thrown the Berkeley physicist under the bus, criticizing his methods, and are now very <laughs> upset that he said, quote, you should not be a skeptic any longer. They've gone now to the predictable spin cycle, which you'll find happens with most climate change denial industry people. First, they say it isn't happening. Then they say, oh, it's happening, but humans aren't responsible. Then they say, okay, humans are responsible, but it's too expensive for us to do anything. And finally, they start calling for billions of dollars of investment for geoengineering, basically anything, to keep using fossil fuels. Moving on to the media now, another absolute classic. Worldpublicopinion.org, managed by a program on international policy attitudes at the University of Maryland, did a study that showed, I don't know, conclusively is the right word, but overwhelmingly, that if you watch Fox News, and the more you watch Fox News, the more misinformed you become on a wide array of stories. Almost daily viewers of Fox News were 31 points more likely to mistakenly believe that most economists have estimated the health care law will worsen the deficit. So there's no shading here. This is basically, this is basically, you know, saying like daily viewers of Fox News tend to believe that two plus two is three. They were 30, poor, 30 points more likely to believe that most scientists do not agree that climate change is occurring. They were 14 points more likely to believe that the stimulus legislation did not include any tax cuts. 
13 points more likely to believe the auto bailout only occurred under Obama. 12 points more likely to believe that when TARP came up for a vote, most Republicans opposed it. 31 points more likely to believe it's not clear that Obama was born in the United States. The more you watch Fox, the dumber you get. I'm paraphrasing. The study actually says these effects increase incrementally with increasing levels of exposure. And we're all statistically significant. But in other words, that is, the more you watch Fox, the dumber you become. When AOL spent $315 million to acquire the Huffington Post a month ago, the deal raised many questions. The first one was, 350 What? Then came lots of speculation about who won and who lost. But what interested on the media was what the deal meant to the future of journalism and what now to make of this thing, this phenomenal thing, the Huffington Post. The only way to begin, I'm sorry to say, is with everything about the HuffPo that makes traditional journalists want to puke. Be patient. It isn't a short list. Beginning with, HuffPo is kind of yellow. Not cowardly yellow, sensationalist yellow. As I write this piece, the blaring lead headline is, I kid you not, time is running out. Approaching Meteor? No, just a procedural deadline for federal financial reform rules in three months. Last week, they scared the bejeebers out of me with, Texas is burning border to border. The wildfires there did claim a million acres, but at least 99.4% of Texas was unconsumed by flames. And the rest of the layout is pretty bombastic as well. It is a visual presentation that I think might charitably be described as a combination of an old-fashioned afternoon tabloid and a ransom note. Los Angeles Times media critic Tim Rutan. As a longtime detractor, Rutan is one-stop shopping for HuffPo's shortcomings. Item two, aggregation. A large percentage of content on the Huffington Post summarizes and links to material from other publications, providing HuffPo for free what others have paid dearly to produce. Aggregation is the elevation of kleptocracy to a business model. You're simply stealing things that other businesses, other media organizations have paid to gather. Yes, HuffPo redirects traffic to the source, but... Those readers usually make a U-turn right back to HuffPo for more of the web highlights HuffPo then sells advertising against. Putting aside whether this digital age fair use is really fair, Rutan says, People who buy into this notion that information wants to be free, that free information is somehow in the DNA of the web, whatever that means, people who buy into that notion are simply committing themselves to a suicide pact. If that notion prevails in a decade, there won't be any serious journalism to aggregate. The entirety of the Huffington Post is edited with preferences of the reader very much top of mind. Favoring subjects already trending high in online interest is called search engine optimization. Another term might be auto-pandering. This notion of tailored news is really a form of informational narcissism. Once again, it allows you to narrow down the scope of your news consumption to those things you already know or believe you know. And what it doesn't do is let you see the story 
that you never imagined you'd be interested in and that somehow broadens your perspective, enriches your life, makes you a better citizen, gives you something to think about that afternoon. None of these is a trifling concern, nor are the remaining controversial HuffPo quirks. It's building of a $315 million asset through the labors of unpaid bloggers and its pronounced liberal slant, raising questions of journalistic credibility. It was mentioned there, but it bears repeating, the value of the Huffington Post was built primarily on the backs of thousands of bloggers who wrote on the platform for free for the benefit of exposure only. Obviously, they didn't see any of the benefits of the big sellout either. Just something to keep in mind. Now, our next topic will sound familiar. Does anyone even remember the Gabby Gifford shooting? I feel like it hardly ever gets brought up anymore, and it should be mentioned daily now that we have QAnon pro-assassination Congress members in Washington. A car is reporting a shooting amount with a semi-automatic weapon. He shot at people, and he was last seen headed towards the Walgreens. He ran northbound out of the store wearing a black hoodie and blue jeans. And uh, we have a caller who believes that Gabrielle Giffords was shot. That's uh, multiple victims. Uh, sounds like many people are shot. Are you responding to the shooting of suspects? I mean... Let me rephrase. Customers have tackled the suspect. They are holding him down at the Safeway. After this weekend's tragic shooting in Arizona, Media Matters looks back at those right-wing media figures who had previously been dismissive of threats of violence directed at Democrats. You think that this is just an effort to smear conservatives. Is this a concerted effort to say, you know what, they're all a bunch of racists, they're all a bunch of, of homophobes? Is this a democratic tactic to take some of the people on the fringe who are clearly out of line, doing things that show violence and threats because they feel as though this vote did not go their way, and are Democrats using that to their advantage to marginalize Republican opposition? Democrats who did this, who sort of ran this down our throats, regardless of the fact that it actually won't save us any money, it's going to bankrupt us, and that the American people didn't want it, um, want us to feel sorry for them, that they've gotten a couple of angry, you know, voicemails. They should, they should read my email. Um, you know, uh, uh, what did they expect? Saturday, I was at my dad's house when I heard the news, and I turned on CNN and watched the horrible story unfold with my wife and my sister. And I remember saying, you know, this doesn't surprise me. And it doesn't surprise me because I've been worried about something like this for two years now, worried that with all the hateful rhetoric coming out of the right wing that some crazy person would do something dreadful. So shame on Sarah Palin. Shame on her for saying lock and load. Shame on Sarah Palin for writing don't retreat reload with the word reload in all caps followed by three exclamation points. Shame on Sarah Palin for having on her website Gabriel Giffords literally in the crosshairs as number four on her list of 20 targeted Democrats. But Sarah Palin wasn't alone. Shame on the other right-wing politicians and pundits who bandied about incendiary rhetoric over the past two years. Shame on Sharon Engel for speculating on the need for 
Second Amendment remedies. Shame on Sean Hannity for cheering on Tim McVeigh wannabes. And shame on Glenn Beck for all his violence-ridden rampages. Gabriel Giffords remains in critical condition. Six people are dead. Fourteen others are wounded. Are you happy now? And let's not forget that even the most horrific terror attack of the year wasn't enough to get the right wing off their talking points. At least 92 have been killed in the two terrorist attacks in Oslo, Norway and the surrounding area. The individual's name, he's 32 years old, his name is Anders Bering Brevik. He had been living with his mother. Every indication is that he is a right-wing extremist, and every indication that we've seen from conservative media in the United States is that this was some kind of Muslim Islamic terrorism. No surprise there at all. Seven were killed when a blast ripped through Oslo's government headquarters, and then 85 were killed at a mass shooting at a nearby youth camp. Dozens more were hospitalized. There are actually pictures, Lewis, of Anders Bering Brevik, the 32-year-old shooter, from a helicopter, from a police helicopter above this island uh, camp, youth camp, where it is clearly a scene of complete terror. And he is holding a gun and just taking fire at people. And everyone's first guess about the perpetrators was it was Islamist radicals. And it was dead wrong. And we see this happen very, very often. Not only that, we see a complete reticence to even admit that anything was a so-called right-wing attack, and Brevik has been known to write posts on a number of these right-wing internet forums in Norway, where he's described himself as a nationalist, he has uh, written a bunch of uh, different screeds critical of Muslims, and, you know, the thing is, Fox News doesn't even care that this is not actually Islamist terror. First, they reported a couple of times that this may be connected to that. However, Eventually, they realized that it wasn't, but you know what? They still were talking uh, to people as if that's the biggest concern. The biggest concern, Lewis, it doesn't matter that this particular incident wasn't Islamist terror, but let's just keep talking about Islamist terror. And this is is not a parody clip. This is not Saturday Night Live. This is real. Take a listen to this. We're not properly prepared for this kind of thing. That's right, Greg. You've heard the term, the exception that proves the rule. Um, you know, this wasn't Islamic terrorism. It was, it's one of the first instances since Oklahoma City when terrorism on this scale was not Islamic. But steps you could take to defend your people and your government and your society against Islamic terrorism would also come in handy <laughs> against lone wolves, as this is turning out to be. It just right. looks like the Norwegians didn't happen to take them, nor did they approach terrorism in what, frankly, was a serious manner, I'd say. Okay, right. As long as you protect yourself against against Islamic terrorist threats, you'll be be protected against all terrorists. What's incredible is I just played 28 seconds of that clip, Lewis. And in those 28 seconds, do you realize the amount of nonsense that was covered? We included in that clip, even though this wasn't Islamist terror, that's the concern. And that's what we need to be prepared for. We included this was another lone wolf completely disconnected from anything else and we included in there that um norway does not take seriously issues of terror so we managed to include basically the full suite of conservative propaganda points on terror in only 28 seconds 
Another hallmark of divided government is the constant battle over the budget and threats over government shutdowns. And a hallmark of the Obama administration was him trying way too hard to negotiate with Republicans who had no interest in good-faith negotiation. President Obama had lunch with Republican leaders and kindly asked one of them to pass the salt, the whole bunch would denounce the very idea of passing anything he wanted, accuse him of overreaching his constitutional authority, and declare the sharing of salt to be socialism. It's tough to contend with such knee-jerk political naysayers, but we need a president who will at least try. Unfortunately, though, Obama is giving in from the start on the solid principle that America can't simply cut its way to renewed economic greatness, especially with tens of millions of Americans either unemployed or barely employed. Grassroots revival requires bold, invigorating grassroots investment. The president's own budget proposal, however, slashes such obviously needed infrastructure programs as airport expansion, water treatment improvements, and environmental restoration. The no-can-do, visionless Republican leadership is willing to let the future of America and our workaday majority slide, yet Obama seems unwilling to fight them. Of course we should be dealing with an ever-rising budget deficit, but America's red ink flows from a debt amassed during the past decade by two unwarranted wars, absurd tax giveaways to the wealthiest elites, and an economic crash caused by Wall Street's insatiable greed. It's both economically and morally wrong for Washington now to put the budget burden on the already strained backs of working stiffs and the poor, who did not cause the deficit, much less profit from it. If the experts uh, are to be believed, Inaction on the debt ceiling and deficit reduction would be catastrophic. Mm -hmm. But the negotiations have thus far seemingly brought out the worst in our political and pundit class. That's right. And if the conversation continues this way, we could very well hit the national bullshit ceiling. <laughs> well, that, that would be catastrophic. That's right. And as you know, John, the national bullshit ceiling, or to put it in layman's terms, the amount of bullshit people are actually willing to take, has slowly been creeping up. Where, where are we at now with the bullshit ceiling right now? Right now, Americans have pretty much headed up to about here with this bullshit. <laughs> but by the end of next month, it seems likely we'll have had it up to here. <laughs> Bullshit-wise. And the last time I checked, we don't have poo gills. You know, we're close to hitting the bullshit ceiling. Mm. Why should we be worried? John, if we reach the point where the amount of bullshit exceeds the amount of actual things, we will effectively default on reality. It's already started happening. If you want an abortion, you go to Planned Parenthood, and that's well over 90% of what Planned Parenthood does. We did call his office trying to ask uh, uh, what he was talking about there, and uh, it ha you know what, I just want to give it to you verbatim here. It says his remark was not intended to be a factual statement. Did you see that? When John Kyle got called on his bullshit, his response was to get angry at people for expecting something other than bullshit. And look at that. Years before there were alternative facts, there were simply statements that were not intended to be factual. It really was a simpler time. 
Now, some of you may remember Jack Abramoff, one of the few lobbyists who managed to be so corrupt that he actually did end up in jail. 2011 was when he went on his apology tour. Often on the show, we tell you about uh, legalized corruption in the system, that uh, there are many different ways that you can do that. You can do it through campaign donations. Uh, Another way you can do it is by uh, offering jobs to staff members or to congressmen after uh, they leave office. Well, a guy uh, who should know a lot about this is Jack Abramoff. He was interviewed on 60 Minutes. Now, he got busted for doing some illegal actions, but what he's describing here really is not illegal at all. It's the legalized corruption that he's talking about that's endemic to the system. And uh, boy, uh, after you hear this, you see exactly how it all works. When we would become friendly with an office and they were important to us, and the chief of staff was a competent person, uh, I would say, or my staff would say to him or her at some point, you know, when you're done working on the Hill, we'd very much like you to consider coming to work for us. Now, the moment I said that to them, or any of our staff said that to them, we owned them. And what does that mean? Every request from our office, every request of our clients, everything that we want, they're going to do. And not only that, they're going to think of things we can't think of to do. Exactly right. Exactly what we've been saying all along. And the problem isn't what's illegal. The problem is is what is legal. He says, look, man, you're going to get paid later. Okay? So you play ball, and maybe you can come work for us and make real money. And all of a sudden, they own them. How bad was it? How many uh, congressional offices did they own? Let's talk about that. First, I I think most congressmen don't feel they're being bought. Uh, Most congressmen, I think, can, in their own mind, justify uh, the system. Rationalize. And by the way, we wanted as lobbyists for them to feel that way. How many congressional offices did you actually own? Uh, We probably had very strong influence in 100 offices at a time. (gasps) Come on. A hundred offices. In those days, I would view that as a failure because at least 335 offices that we didn't have strong influence in. So there's the corrupt Congress angle. Keep that in your mind for a moment while we assess the recovery up to this point from the Great Recession. The stock market is doing great. Corporations are doing great. And the bosses of corporations, they're also doing great. (laughs) After the Great Recession, these guys rebuilt Fat City really fast, and now they are living in it. Check it out. Last year, CEO pay jumped 27%. What? Typo? No. Last year, CEO pay jumped 27%, reported in USA Today. In technical terms, that is an awful lot on top of an already god-awful lot. The paper's top dog, top, top dog, uh, was this guy, Philippe Doman. I think that's how you say his last name. It's D-A-U-M-A-N. Uh, he's the chairman of Viacom. Uh, $84.5 million. Yeah, that guy's recession is over. Yours may or may not be, depending on whether or not you are average. The government reports that average worker pay grew just 2.1% last year which is the technical way of saying almost nothing, flat, going nowhere. So the rich guys are getting way richer. Think about this. CEO pay up 27% in a year. Um, you, my average friend, not getting way richer. Average worker pay, flat. 27% for the CEOs, flat for average workers. I am not trying to start a class war here. I am just saying this is what's going on. The CEOs are doing way better. Average workers, not underlined. 
Politicians at the state and federal level keep saying we're broke, we're broke, we're broke. We have to have some shared sacrifice. But when they say shared sacrifice, what they mean is they mean cutting teacher pay by amounts that really matter. They mean laying off half the school district staff in Philadelphia while the state works to shovel a huge new bigger hole in the state's deficit in order to give hundreds of millions of dollars to corporations. They mean raising taxes on working class families and the elderly in Michigan. Raising taxes on working class people and the elderly in Michigan in order to finance hundreds of millions of dollars to give away to business. They mean cutting programs that help poor people heat their homes. That is an Obama administration proposal, by the way. They mean declaring a financial emergency, making the deficit way worse with a bunch of corporate giveaways, and then cutting money from programs for the disabled, like they're doing in Florida. This economic strategy is costing the nation a bundle. I mean, all we hear about is cuts, right? But it's one thing to talk about cutting spending. The thing that is being lost in translation is that this is not just cutting. This is a transfer of wealth, of wealth that specifically might otherwise be able to close a budget deficit. And instead, it is being shoveled out the door to corporate interests and to the people who, frankly, are already doing great right now in the economy. All of which led us, unsurprisingly, to the backlash. Here is, formally and finally, what Occupy Wall Street says and wants. It is, in essence, their special comment. As we gather together in solidarity to express a feeling of mass injustice, we must not lose sight of what brought us together. We write so that all people who feel wronged by the corporate forces of the world can know that we are your allies. As one people, united, we acknowledge the reality that the future of the human race requires the cooperation of its members, that our system must protect our rights, and upon corruption of that system, it is up to the individuals to protect their own rights and those of their neighbors, that the democratic government derives its just power from the people, but corporations do not seek consent to extract wealth from the people and the earth, and that no true democracy is attainable when the process is determined by economic power. We come to you at a time when corporations, which place profit over people, self-interest over justice, and oppression over equality, run our governments. We have peaceably assembled here, as is our right, to let these facts be known. They have taken our houses through an illegal foreclosure process, despite not having the original mortgage. They have taken bailouts from taxpayers with impunity and continue to give executives exorbitant bonuses. They have perpetuated inequality and discrimination in workplaces based on age, the color of one's skin, sex, gender identity, and sexual orientation. They have poisoned the food supply through negligence and undermined the farming system through monopolization. They have profited off the torture, confinement, and cruel treatment of countless animals and actively hide these practices. They have continuously sought to strip employees of the right to negotiate for better pay and safer working conditions. They have held students hostage with tens of thousands of dollars of debt on education, which is itself a human right. They have consistently outsourced labor and used that outsourcing as leverage to cut workers' health care and pay. They have influenced the courts to achieve the same rights as people with none of the culpability or responsibility. They have spent millions of dollars on legal teams that look for ways to get them out of contracts in regards to health insurance. They have sold our privacy as a commodity. They have used the military and police force to prevent freedom of the press. They have deliberately declined to recall faulty products, endangering lives in pursuit of profit. They determine economic policy, despite the catastrophic failures their policies have produced and continue to produce. 
They have donated large sums of money to politicians who are responsible for regulating them. They continue to block alternate forms of energy to keep us dependent on oil. They continue to block generic forms of medicine that could save people's lives or provide relief in order to protect investments that have already turned to substantial profit. They have purposely covered up oil spills, accidents, faulty bookkeeping, and inactive ingredients in pursuit of profit. They purposefully kept people misinformed and fearful through their control of the media. They have accepted private contracts to murder prisoners, even when presented with serious doubts about their guilt. They have perpetuated colonialism at home and abroad. They have participated in the torture and murder of innocent civilians overseas. They continue to create weapons of mass destruction in order to receive government contracts. To the people of the world, we, the New York City General Assembly, occupying Wall Street in Liberty Square, urge you to assert your power, exercise your right to peaceably assemble, occupy public space, create a process to address the problems we face, and generate solutions accessible to everyone. To all communities that take action and form groups in the spirit of direct democracy, we offer support, documentation, and all the resources at our disposal. Join us and make your voices heard. The statement issued from Zuccotti Park by the General Assembly at Occupy Wall Street. Give back our country. We come to defend our right to inspire, to love and befriend. Our right to be healthy. Our right to believe in a country of equals, of a chance to receive, a chance to develop, a chance to forgive, a chance to dignify the way that we live as we During the day, Zuccotti Park has the feel of, like, a festival. You know, there's free food out, people are playing music, wandering around, napping under trees. I saw a few people smoking joints. And we thought, all right, it's this big park full of independent thinkers, all of different views. Is there like a unified thing here? Is there is is there some way that this is different from any other park in Manhattan where there's lots of people wandering around doing whatever they feel like? How does this thing come together and be one thing? So everyone told us this park does come together at one point at night at seven o'clock. Everyone told us you guys have to go to the General Assembly. That's where decisions get made that affect this group. So we went. My name is Jeff. So you probably heard of this. This is the form of communication called the people's mic. The police won't allow bullhorns, so the crowd repeats every phrase said by the person addressing the crowd. The night we went, the meeting was being led by two people, facilitators. But before the facilitators can begin facilitating the meeting, this dude in a puffy overcoat leaps out of the crowd to make this point about the facilitators. These are positions of power. These are positions of power. They have the power to tell us we can't talk. They have the power to tell us we can't talk. They lead this discussion in a direction. They lead this discussion in a direction. If they never ask for our consent, if they never ask for our consent, their power is illegitimate. Their power is Okay, so there is one rule here, and the rule is that decisions are made by consensus. The group consents to proposals by waving their fingers in the air, kind of like jazz hands. And then if they don't agree, they also do jazz hands, but upside down. And as you can imagine, it's hard to get 400 people to consent to anything. But soon enough, the night we went, all 400 people or so consented to the facilitators facilitating the meeting. 
And so we learned the General Assembly, this is where everyone gets together, but there's also these working groups, these subcommittees that meet throughout the day, the Sanitation Committee, the Finance Committee, the Legal Committee, and they all report back to the General Assembly. And so the night we were there, the Comfort Committee had a proposal about how to allocate some of the tens of thousands of dollars that have been donated to the group. We need sleeping bags. Sleeping bags. Sleeping bags cost money. We would like to request about $2,000. So people had a lot of questions for Sleeping Bag Man about his proposal. Does the proposal include a sales tax, which goes to the government? How will the sleeping bags be kept clean? My question is more pragmatic. Should we not just buy fabric? Buy fabric! And construct sleeping bags? Sleeping bags! Zoe, what we realized was this General Assembly, this isn't just some logistical asterisk to the protest. This is what this whole thing is about. This is what they're for. This process itself, participatory democracy, that is what this group is demanding. Because the big win is not to bend, and it's only a fear that betrays us. Yeah, the big to be our own best friend because it's clear no one's coming to save us and in the midst of occupy another campaign you may have heard of was announced some things in this world are good to do like speak up for yourself and have fun too i'm jake i'm jake, I'm jake uger i'm jake uger of the young turks of the young turks i have an announcement i have an announcement tonight We're going to start a fight to take back our democracy. Our politicians are bought. Who bought them? The corporations did. Corporations are not immoral. They have no morality. Corporations are profit-making machines. We must not let the machines take over our government. In this fight, we need leaders. We need organizers. We need you. We want an army to fight for an amendment to declare corporations are not people. They can no longer buy our politicians. We want to occupy the states to demand that the states call for a constitutional convention. Please help us fight the machines. If you want to help, if you want to help, go to, go to, new website, new website, wolf-pack.com, wolf-pack.com. And now we begin to wrap up the year and finish with a look at what would become some of the first days of the rest of our lives. The 2012 election was just beginning to take shape, and the now infamous 47% comment was emerging. The key thing to remember before you hear the lie repeated is that the 47% of people who don't pay federal income tax is made up almost entirely of children and the retired. But who did Fox News have on to talk about unworthy people not paying their federal taxes? In 2009, the Tax Policy Center projected that 47% of U.S. households would pay no income taxes to the federal government. Or as Fox News would say, Uh, You know, there are a lot of people in this country, over half don't even pay any federal taxes. So he's really talking about you. You're going to have to sacrifice more. Well, you know, I don't mind sacrificing for the country, to be honest with you. But, you know, you do have a problem because half of the people don't pay any tax. And when he's talking about that, he's talking about people that aren't also working, that are not contributing to the society. And it's a problem. But we have 
50%. It just hit the 50% mark. 50% of the people are paying no tax. And just remember once again that the whole argument that was a major part of the 2012 campaign that they used to stoke anger about lazy takers who vote for Democrats versus the industrious makers who vote Republican, they were referring to children and the elderly. This week, the right-wing media managed to fall in love pretty quickly with the Donald, despite his recent controversial statements. You know the Donald Trump's real appeal? I don't think it's his money or his fame. I really don't. It's not the way he handles the issues. I think it's the way he talks about the issues. He's brutally frank. He's unusually blunt. I think he talks like a boxer, even though he's a billionaire. And I suspect he got to be a billionaire precisely because he didn't talk like a billionaire. Being blunt is something Trump doesn't have trouble with. Speaking on a radio show, he said the following earlier this week. I have a great relationship with the blacks. I have, I've always had a great relationship with the blacks. Classy Trump. Conservatives don't seem to mind Trump's birther claims nor his blunt talk. A new public policy polling poll released today shows Trump leading the Republican presidential primary race by nine points. Donald Trump is making noise about running for president. It's absurd. In the end, I don't think it's going to happen. As I'm going to show you, his unfavorables are through the roof. And the problem is the guy's just a redheaded clown, okay? He could, uh, you know, if Ronald McDonald needed to take a coffee break, this guy could fill in for him. But apparently that doesn't hurt you in the Republican Party because he's pulling really well. CNN has him tied with Huckabee at the top of the uh, Republican field of candidates at 19% each. NBC Wall Street Journal poll has him in second place tied with Huckabee at 17%. They have Romney at 21%. Fox News has him a little lower, still coming in fourth, which is very respectable. But overall, looks to be first and second in a lot of these polls. Public policy polling has him number two in New Hampshire, uh, pulling down Mitt Romney's huge lead over there. So all of a sudden, you have to start taking Donald Trump a little seriously. Well, I mean, it's got the upside that it's going to be entertaining. It's got the downside that, that our politics has become such a mockery that this clown can have a legitimate shot within the field, at least for the moment being. Now, look, uh, what are his unfavorables? Why do I say he has ultimately no chance of winning? Uh, right now, his favorable rating is uh, 43% overall, okay? His unfavorable is 47%. So... A lot of the country knows him. There's no question about that, and that's a huge advantage he has. He has name recognition. Uh, the flip side is a lot of the country thinks he's a clown and has no interest in him being president. Look, I did a long segment on this on MSNBC where we explain how many times his companies have gone bankrupt. The whole thing is smoke and mirrors. In a lot of ways, he's an excellent Republican candidate because he claims to be such a great businessman when he has had bankruptcy after bankruptcy. It's based on nothing. It's, it's a mirage. And, uh, and he now basically sells his name to other buildings. And so name recognition is the way that he makes his money. So he does this to gin up, you know, media attention. But now that he's, you know, doing so well within the Republican field, I think he's begun to convince himself that he's for real. And look, he, I don't know if he knows what he's getting himself into. He's already incredibly thin-skinned. But, dude, you're going into a Republican primary. You know what they're going to do to you? They're going to rip your face off. 
If you're actually in the heat of that primary, we're nowhere near the heat of it right now. Now everybody's playing patty cakes, okay? But once you get down to we're about to vote, they're going to bring out all your dirty laundry. Do you know how big Donald Trump's closet is with all those skeletons? It's a walk-in closet, okay? They're going to bring out your casino bankruptcies. They're going to bring out how you actually don't build things and you rent out your name. They're going to bring out your ex-wives. They're going to bring out everything. They're going to rip your clown face off. Okay, I don't think you know what you're getting yourself into, Donald. But look, I'm looking forward to finding out. Okay, so have at it, Hoss. I'm ready to get entertained. And finally, I think I have a first for you in the history of Best of Left retrospective episodes. I finished today with a clip not from 2011, but from 2021, from the last episode of the podcast Trump, Inc., because it is itself looking back on the year 2011. Trump, Inc. reporter Meg Kramer. So this is a one-page document on a decorative green background. Thing number one is a birth certificate from 1961. Not the original. This is a printout of a scanned document. A one-page form filled out on a typewriter. The most important thing about that is the place, right? Yeah, place of birth, Honolulu, Hawaii. It is President Barack Obama's long-form birth certificate. Hospital. August 4th, 1961, 7.24 p.m. I wanted to include this object because it comes from a pivotal moment in the years leading up to Trump's 2016 campaign. Trump did not invent birtherism, the racist conspiracy theory that President Obama was not born in the United States. And his interest in this conspiracy theory coincided with a roughly six-week period in the spring of 2011, when he was publicly toying with the idea of running for president. That March, Trump's attorney, Michael Cohen, flew to Iowa. When Cohen got back, there was a press conference at Trump Tower. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Michael Cohen. I'm an executive at the Reporters Trump were ready for a political announcement, but Cohen was there to talk about business. Republic of Georgia to explore several real estate opportunities on behalf of Mr. Trump. A new Trump Tower in Bedeet, Georgia, the country. By holding out the possibility that he might run for president, Trump got something he valued, attention. The president of the Republic of Georgia, who was at this press conference, ended up fielding questions about Trump's potential candidacy. Just to follow up, Mr. Sully, do you think uh, Mr. Trump should consider running for president? Days later, Trump appeared on The View wearing a dark suit and a long red tie. The hosts ask him about his candidacy and some comments he made in a recent interview. Here's Joy Behar. You recently said about President Obama, I'm going to quote you, he grew up and nobody knew him. Nobody knows who he is until later in his life. The whole thing is very strange. What are you driving at there? Are you a Bertha? Trump doesn't come right out and say it. Instead, he raises his doubts, sticks up for birthers. He argues with the hosts. They talk over each other. Whoopi Goldberg points out the racism. They run out of time and cut to commercial. When they come back, Trump is still on the couch. Barbara Walters says... We very rarely do this, and it may be setting a bad precedent, but we love him. So we've asked Donald Trump to stay for the second segment. Suddenly, he's everywhere. The Today Show, CNN, The Laura Ingram Show, and of course, Fox. All right, Mr. Trump, does it have anything to do with race? President Obama tried to take the high road and ignore Trump, but he was also trying to pass a new budget. And The Trump Show was getting more attention. 
So on April 27th, the president called a press conference in the White House brief. Uh, as many of you have been briefed, uh, we provided additional information today about uh, the site of my birth. He's got this expression on his face that, to me, looks like he's trying to take this seriously, but also isn't it ridiculous, but also you can kind of tell he's pissed. He never mentions Trump by name. We're not going to be able to solve our problems if we get distracted by sideshows and carnival barkers. We live in a serious time right now. And Obama's staff posted a PDF of the birth certificate on the White House website. That's where I got my copy, the one I'm including in this time capsule. The White House released the document. Trump held his own press conference in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. A recent Republican presidential primary poll had him in the lead ahead of the eventual nominee, Mitt Romney. I am very proud of myself because I have accomplished something nobody else has accomplished, Trump says. I'd want to look at it, but I hope it's true. Even though Obama released his long-form birth certificate five years before Trump became president, it is an object that represents so many parts of Trump's story. In the year 2021, we all remember the basic contours of Trump's foray into birtherism. Racism, lies, a conspiracy theory that generated an endless spiral of doubt. What I want people in the future to understand is that this pattern became predictable. It repeated itself again and again throughout Trump's presidency, right up until the very end. And with that, we arrive back to where we started and kick off at least 10 more years of retrospective episodes in which we'll have to mention the impact that Donald Trump has had on our politics. Mark your calendars and look forward to that. If you would like to leave a comment or question to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write to me at j at bestofleft.com. Thanks so much to our volunteer, Jonathan, who stepped up in the midst of the chaos of 2020 and offered to dive into the 2011 archives to do nearly all of the research necessary for today's episode. It was an amazing effort. Thanks also to our regular researchers, Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for helping in the final stages of putting this episode together. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic design, webmastering, and on and on. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support, as that is absolutely how the program survives. And now, in addition, everyone can earn rewards and support the show just by telling everyone you know about it using our Referomatic. Check that out at bestofleft.com refer. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thank you.